This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. We now have the scripture reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'd like to invite our sister Cheryl to read this for us. Okay. If you need a Bible, there are church Bibles at the side. Otherwise, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 on your phones. Or you can follow it on the screen as well. Okay. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will oppress, will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, 
is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord! There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt? You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. This is the word of God. To Pastor Andrew Wong. Thanks, Shalin, for reading today's passage. And a very good morning to everyone. Good morning. Or is it afternoon? Yeah. It's great to see everyone here. And uh, it was such a joy yesterday to uh, see all the photos coming in from our Batam team and uh, as they go and share the word of the Lord. If you are new with us, can I extend a warm welcome to you, the way that Johnson did, and for our old friends, it's always good to see each other. I hope you have your Bible with you, and uh, with that, what do we ask God to help us? Let's pray. There's no one like you, O oh God. There's no God but you. As we sang just now, that we bring nothing in our hands before you. We recognize these words later when David, the great king, says that he was a nobody, but you are the sovereign Lord. So we come to you. We ask humbly that your spirit will be with us. For those of us who are tired, those of us who have been busy this week, our minds have been filled with a lot of responsibilities and burdens, we pray, God, that you will lift them up so that we can hear your word. So be with us here as we enter into 2 Samuel 7, that God, your word will be clear to us, your spirit will be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What does high risk mean? The men ask. His oncologist looked him in the eyes as responded and responded, you are going to die of this. Garth is 44 years old. He's been diagnosed with cancer three times since November 2011. 
prostate cancer once, kidney cancer twice, although he appeared healthy, um, the statistic says that he has an 8% chance of living past five years. Garth has one daughter named Emma. She, he has been writing napkin notes to Emma and put it in her lunchbox since she was grade two. It was just a few words of encouragement, but in the busyness of their separate days at work and school, is that moment that they can connect. Garth may die, but he will not let Emma eat lunch without the nose, and this is his promise to write one napkin note for every day of class Emma has until she graduates from high school. Today, when this article was written, that was 12 years ago, um, he said he has written 740, 86 to go. Well, this was taken from a non-profit social organization movement where people wrote promises on promise cards and it always ends up with, because I said I would. Now, there are many other stories I could share with you, uh, which I don't have time, but there was one a lady called Elizabeth, a nurse, who was giving a promise card to a patient who was so afraid that she doesn't appear to have lunch with her and she'll be eating alone. So her card reads, I promise I will come and have lunch with you tomorrow. And the next day, the elderly woman who was suffering from dementia was waiting for her. She was holding this little card in her hand. She looked up with that familiar smile and said, you remembered. And you and I, we value promises made to us. So they go to this woman. The promises were important. Now, how much more so when God makes a promise to us? Behind all the great promises that you can ever get in this world, the greatest and the hardest promise comes from God. This morning, we come to a passage about God who keeps promises because he said he would. So if you have your Bible or if you look up the screen, join me as we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be reading from verse 1 and verse 2. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, King David, if you have been familiar and following us, he is the king of Israel. He has finally reached the peak of his life. At this point, he has entered Jerusalem, he has found rest, and the rest of Israel shares the rest and security of King David. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David became, um, the, became great as he fights the enemies. He was winning decisively against the Jebusites, the Philistines. Now, Hiram, king of Tyre, had sent envoys to David. He brought cedar wood, sent carpenters, uh, stonemasons, and they built this lovely, magnificent cedar palace for David. And David knew that day that the Lord had established his kingship and the kingdom for the sake of his people. So as you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, this is actually a very, very historic moment. Because Israel now has a king, it has a city, it has a promised land, they had peace, they had the ark of the Lord. The king has his own permanent house, a house of cedar, a luxurious place, no more tents, no more caves, no more wandering for Israel. 
Israel either draws nations to it or it sends fear to those who don't. No more wondering. No, this is the moment Israel has been dreaming for centuries. The promise made to Abraham one millennium ago has finally arrived because God said he would. We've read God's promises to Abraham earlier in our responsive reading in Genesis that you have read. Let me just look at two verses again for us. Let me just remind us what we read just now in Genesis 12 verse 2. The Lord said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. And Genesis 17 verse 6, I will make you, Abraham, very fruitful. I'll make nations of you and kings will come from you. Now, God promised to Abraham seems to be coming into fruition through David. They have a people, they have a place, Jerusalem, they have a relationship with God, and the ark of the Lord is in the tent right there in Jerusalem in the view of the king. Now, as King David contemplates on what he has received from the Lord, he looks out of his luxurious palace and window, and he became deeply troubled. Verse 2 is, he called Nathan, God's prophet, and he said this, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. No, though unspoken, it is clear to Nathan what King David had in mind. There are two points that David actually is making in that statement in verse 2. First of all, he's actually saying this. He's saying this, that we have finally arrived. We have finally arrived. And the second thing he's saying is that we are not moving anymore. The ark of the Lord is going to have a permanent house, a temple. We are not moving this is our home as God promised Abraham, and we are going to be here. And then his point is, how can a servant living in a cedar palace while his master lives in a tent? And he wants to build a house, a temple for the Lord. This unspoken, but Nathan hears and understands. So verse 3, he says, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Now it seems to Nathan that David's desire it's good. The, the victories affirm God is with David. Nathan too saw that this is right. Jerusalem is a fulfillment of the promise that God has given to Abraham. A king, a land, a relationship with God. God had kept his promise because God said he would. So in his own wisdom and without seeking the Lord, Nathan replies to David, do what your heart desires. What can go wrong? If David is a chosen king, whatever you do, God will be pleased. <clears throat> Surely God will be happy when David builds him a cedar house as well. Is it? Well, look with me to verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. 
Now, God addresses David as his servant in verse 5, if you have your Bible open, just like he did to two other men, Abraham and Moses. No, as he addresses David, he says, my servant, is to bring out this point that even the best intention that someone can have, a servant does not plan for the master. Humans do not include God in our plan. God includes us in His. You get the difference. We do not include God in our plans and our to-do list. God includes us as He makes His way into history. No, in this account, David is not the one to initiate God's next step. God is always the initiator. He's the one who told Moses how to build the tabernacle, how to build the ark. The Lord is the one who rescued Israel out of Egypt and moved uh, with the Israelites. He had not asked for a house of cedar, and it is a mistake to plan for the Lord rather than to seek the Lord. Now, dear friends, have there been occasion where you and I, we, we make plans among ourselves on the good things we want to do for the Lord, but in all this planning, we actually didn't pray and ask the Lord or read His Word. Have there been times where we talk about God, but not to God, whether it's on Sunday, whether it's a Bible study, whether it's your one-to-one Bible reading, that you discuss, we discuss about God, but we actually do not talk to God. One of the things that our Bible study group is trying to do a bit more is to finish more on time, our studies, and we have more time to pray. Because it is an irony when we, we spend all the time to talk about the Bible and say there's no time to pray, let's go home and pray yourselves, and, and we head out. That, that, that is a tragedy as well, if we spend so much time talking about God, but not to God. In this important conversation between the king and the prophet about the Lord, they did not seek the Lord himself, and based on their decisions, they thought it was a good idea. Now, one thing we can learn is this, that responding rightly to God cannot be substituted merely by good intention. Good intention doesn't work if it is wrong. Imagine guys, right, or husbands, Gifting a pair of beautiful jeans to your wife that's one size too small. Imagine that you uh, would buy an iPhone cable for someone with an Android phone. Imagine baking this delicious, beautiful cheesecake for someone who is lactose intolerant. It, it just doesn't match. And so the Lord corrected then while David loves God and plans to build a house for the Lord, the Lord has a different plan for David. In fact, God turns the table around from verse 8 to 16. Instead of David expressing his love and his plans for God by building a house for him, God is going to reveal his love and purpose for David and Israel. God plans to build a house for David. The promise he made to Abraham will now include David as well. So as we move on, look on with me to verses 8 to verse 9. Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appoint you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Notice who is the one who 
has been doing all the work. God is the one who declares earlier in verse 6, I brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Now in verse 8, I took you from the pasture. I appoint you ruler. Verse 9, I have been with you. I have cut off all your enemies. Now God is the initiator and the one who is leading. God is the one who first loved and saved David while he was that young shepherd boy. Now God saved David from the lions and the bears, from internal and external enemies. God brought David from the greens of Bethlehem to the cedar of Jerusalem. God is the one who made that shepherd boy into the king of his own people. Like a father who is fixing a a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, God is the one who knows how the completed puzzle looks like and he involves his beloved to get into the pieces. David gets to take part in God's divine plan and God is not the one that David puts into his agenda. And as if the love revealed by God is not enough, God wrote on his promise card, the rest of the verses is this, I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. David, you are not the one to make my name great or provide a house for me, offer me a resting place. Rather, David, verse 9, I will make your name great like Abraham and Moses, my servants. God will make David the greatest king of Israel. And this is written on a promise card engraved by God's word. David, you will not provide a place for me in your lifetime. But verse 10, I will provide a place for you and my people in my timeline. No, David, you will not provide me a rest. But verse 11, I will give you rest. Now, as this passage, which is, which is the crux of the Old Testament, where the promise comes, God is the one who takes the initiative. He's the promise giver, and he is the promise keeper. Now, God had promised Abraham that nations would be blessed through his offspring. But here's the question, who exactly is that offspring? From verse 1 just now, when we read, it seems like David might have well been the offspring promised to Abraham. But as this revelation of God continues, David realizes that God's promise is far, far bigger than what his eyes could imagine. David is not the one to fulfill all of God's promises. Rather, in verse 12, it says, When your days are over, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. So this is what happens as uh, Nathan was uh, in bed and God's vision comes to him. God says this, and he tells it to David. And David realized that he will actually die before God completes his promise to bless all nations and give his people that perfect rest. Jerusalem is perfect as a beginning. David will rest with his fathers, and God will continue his promise through the Davidic offspring. David is going to become Abraham version 2.0. That what was promised to Abraham would just enlarge as it comes to David, but it is not David to fulfill it. 
When David finally dies, God will raise up an offspring to take over his throne, David's own flesh and blood. The promised offspring of Abraham will be an offspring of David. Now, this is what the Lord will do from verses 12 to verses 16. If you have your Bible, he goes on to say, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. It is the Lord who will accomplish this forever plan through the house of David. Now, as we hear the word forever being repeated again and again, I wonder how did David kind of reconcile that word forever with his family line? What does forever really mean for David? For David's throne and kingdom to last forever, there are two ways to understand it. Right? The first way, uh, first option is that David's um, lineage will keep going on and on and on and there will be kings every generation, one after the other. His dynasty will never have a setting sun. Now, I did a research. I was trying to find what's the longest dynasty in our human history and I was actually quite amazed that there were some really, really long ones. Um, the longest one, at least in this article, um, the longest standing dynasty is actually the House of Dula of Bulgaria. It lasted almost 3,000 years, 2,890 years, followed by the Imperial House of Japan or the Yamato dynasty that reigns for 2,669 years from 60, 660 BC up to today. And there are many other impressive dynasties that last more than a millennium. Those are really, really long family lines. Yet, 2,000 to 3,000 years are just not long enough to be called forever. Because even the longest uh, family, um, the longest dynasty of close to 3,000 years ended in 753 AD. No dynasty will last long enough to be called forever. So the second option when David hears of this is to recognize that there may come or there will come a Davidic offspring who will be born to sit on the throne and stays on the throne forever. How it works is humanly impossible. How would one man live as a king forever? How will he be strong enough to defend a kingdom, to draw all nations, be always pleasing before the Lord? Well, there's one promise given by God in today's passage that will make everything different. Look at it with me in verse 4. Verse 4, it says, The Lord says, <clears throat> I will be his father, and he will be my son. The kingly offspring will have this father and son relationship with an eternal God. To use the New Testament language, God is actually declaring to the world a special relationship with this future David king and says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Now, one of the greatest problems in the history of Israel or your and my history is the problem of sin and the consequence of death. Anyone doesn't have this problem? Uh, I think we all do. Same as David 
and the rest, we know from history that when sin comes, relationship gets broken. Over the past weeks, as we look at the book of Samuel, we have seen how the lineage of leaders just got broken again and again. Eli's descendants, gone. Samuel's descendant, gone. Saul, King Saul, the one-man dynasty, gone. And here was David, and how is he going to survive until the arrival of such an offspring? And the answer is this, only the Lord's will can make it happen. And so he said this in his promise, when he does wrong, I will punish him, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took from Saul. So it turns out that God also promised to keep the line of David so that there will always be a son until a perfect son comes and comes along. And so because of God's promise, David's family line is that one line that never breaks. When the kingdom was uh, separated to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom always had the lineage of David while the northern kingdom changes every other moment. And it goes on and on. Because the Lord may punish the king, but the Lord will not remove the love he promised until his fulfillment because he said so. So even in the darkest history of Israel, more and more prophecies were being loaded up in the Bible to give more and more promises to this greatness of this great offspring. It becomes clear that the house of David will last forever through one that will stay forever. The later prophet of Ezekiel, Ezekiel was a much later prophet from David, and this is what he says. Do I have the verses here? Oh, I don't. So let me read to you um, from Ezekiel 37, verse 24 to 25. This is what Ezekiel the prophet says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. So this is spoken by the prophet Ezekiel long after David's time. And the other prophet that comes along, Isaiah, comes with that famous passage that we are familiar during Christmas, where this offspring is given the names and title and accolades of God himself that this offspring is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, this child, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and he shall reign on David's throne and over his kingdom and forever. So as the timeline continues, that the promise to Abraham and the promise to David in this offspring becomes clearer and clearer that it is not going to be just a lineage, but there will be one that will be like God, who represents God, and it's not a blasphemy because he will stay there forever. So the stormy line of David could be traced for a millennium until right there where Jesus appears in the New Testament to fulfill God's promise to Abraham and David. That's why the very first verse of your New Testament Bible becomes so historically crucial. Can you memorize the first verse of the New Testament Bible? Uh, you hear this all the time, especially in Christmas. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you give this whole line of names after names to remind us that God keeps his promises to Abraham, to David, all the way to the arrival 
of Jesus. Now, dear friends, as David plans to build a house for God, God has his own plan to build an eternal kingdom through David's offspring, a kingdom where death will have no access, where God's blessing will flow unceasingly, and where all nations can come to God by coming to this king. And this Davidic king is Jesus, as we understand in the Bible. He brings in that forever peace by dying for our sins on the cross, so that God's love will never depart from those who are under the king. And through this king, you and I actually get to call God Father. How audacious that is to actually call God Father uh, for people who are sinners and are men for hell. Now, dear friends, how should we respond to such an amazing love of God? Let's look at the last part where um, David then prays to God and as we look at this, we can consider how we too can speak to God. So look at this last section with me as David prays. In verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Whom am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. Now, when King David heard God's plan, he sat in amazement before the kings of kings. The lesser always goes to the greater. The servant king comes to the Sovereign Lord. Now, it is frightening. I don't know about you. It is frightening to come to the Lord's presence to actually speak to God. I wonder if you think it's frightening. I think it's frightening. There's an assumption there that you and I, we are not God's enemies. There's an assumption we actually have a relationship with God. There's an assumption that He's pleased with us, that He actually wants to answer our prayers and not destroy us. Now, David enters the Lord's presence because and only because the Lord God extends a relationship with him. Those who come to God better have a relationship with God because he is holy and he is the judge. How does David pray? Now, the most important part of David's prayer really is this. If you look at the last part of 2 Samuel 7, it is that his prayer is always a response to the Lord's word. His prayer is always a response to the Lord's word. Word. When he heard the Lord's revelation, David responded in faith by coming before the Lord. He humbly acknowledges there's this unequal relationship. He is but a nobody before the sovereign Lord. Yet because of the promise that the Lord has given, he dares to approach God and then to praise him. Verse 20 onwards, it says, What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. And verse 22, How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. Now, David's praises really written here is to invite you and I to also praise the Lord by knowing him. No wonder the Psalms of David are so beautiful and such beautiful invitation. I wonder if you like the Psalms. I love the Psalms because it always brings us into an invitation to know God 
and then to praise him. Look at today's um, prayer as David declares in verses 22 to 24. He says to God, no one is like you. There is no God but you. How great is God? He is sovereign. He is the only God. He is the one who reveals himself. He is the one who makes a people for himself. Verse 23, he is the redeemer. He performs great and awesome wonders. 24, he establishes his own people and one who makes relationships possible. Now, David's praise invites you and I to know the Lord in order to praise Him and to pray to Him. Now, are there times, so we pause in our own prayers, are there times where we are tempted to attribute achievements to ourselves and then we blame God and complain to Him for disasters? I have at times where prayer to say, God, why, 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 why? Meaning, God, why didn't you do it the way that I want? But not David. He did not blame God for his enemies. He didn't say, God, it's your fault that Saul persecuted me or your hardship. He did not attribute his success to his own capabilities. He praises the Lord for saving and blessing him and Israel. And so David's confidence to pray is really founded in God's promise to him. In verse 27, he says, Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. So David found courage when he's praying because of what God has said. His prayer is based on God's eternal words because God said he would. And so he said in verse 28, Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, had spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Now this is the prayer of one who believes the promise and believes the promise giver. So David prays because he believes God will make good everything he wrote on the promise card. And indeed, God kept his promise thousand years later when the Lord Jesus himself come. Now, dear friends, as we wrap up, how about us? How can we learn from David to pray God's promises? We can pray like David because the Lord Jesus, the son of David, makes it possible for us. The good news of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and the Davidic promise the promise cards that God wrote. Because Jesus is the one who extends God's promise to all nations, including us. How do we find the courage to pray the prayer that David prayed in 2 Samuel 7? Really, we turn back to the Lord Jesus who gave the very same prayer as well. Just as David prays that, may that kingdom comes, the Lord Jesus told his disciples, when you pray, you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So we find courage in our generation, in our time calling God Father because we come under the promised offspring of David who has written his promise card not with ink but with blood so we can carry this promise card right up to heaven when the devil tells us that we have no place there. And that is from the Lord Jesus. So dear friends, as we wrap up 
this is the question we ask. Do we have a promise card from God and His King? Do you carry a promise card that will happen because He said He would? Let me give you a few promise cards as we wrap up. There's three of the many in the Bible. I wonder if you have this, because if you have this, this is our card on the day where we need it. John 6, verse 4. This is what the Lord says. For my Father's will is not that everyone who looks to the Son, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. This is what the Lord promised. If we have this card, it will happen because He said He would. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If you have that, it will happen because God said it and He would. Jesus said, I love this. This is on the, on, uh, on the tomb for my grandmother. I chose this. I love it. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet live. Do you have the promised cards of God? If you do, we have the confidence that David has, that the disciples of Jesus have, that it will be fulfilled because he said he would. But if you do not have, can I invite you as you hear today's passage of God's great promises, that you turn to the Lord Jesus, trust in Him, so that He will give you His promise that will happen when the time comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We can't bring anything to You. We can't even survive our generations because sins always breaks up relationship. But Christ's blood was shed so that sin has no more power, but you will bring us and call us the ones you love because you love your son. Father, we hold on to the promised cards that are engraved by the blood of Jesus written in the scriptures we have in our hands. That God, we know that you who promised him the kingdom and the people for himself that you will make it happen, that in the, in the days where Christ comes for the perfect kingdom, there will be no tears, there will be no sorrows, there will be no pain, not because we are so great, but because our king is so perfect, that your perfect kingdom for him will not tolerate sin and pain and sorrows and brokenness, that you'll heal all who are the people of God, all who are the people of the Lord Jesus, because you said you would. So, Father, as we hear today's passage, the great Davidic promise to David fulfilled in Jesus, we pray, God, that you help us to cling on to Jesus and the promises you have given us through him. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.